Many thanks to Fire Engstrom. Handing over now to Jeff Dancy from the University of Minnesota. Um, hello. I should uh, start by saying that I am not Catherine Sickink. Um, you might have noticed on the uh, on the original bill, Catherine uh, was supposed to be on this very distinguished panel, uh, but like kind of like a sports sports minor leaguer that's been called up to to play in the big leagues. I'm uh, serving as her representative. Uh, as Max said earlier, I'm I'm wearing my Catherine Sickink suit. Um, uh, the reason that Catherine couldn't be here is that she's tending to a, a unfortunately terminally ill friend, uh, Ellen Lutz, who was uh, her original co-author on the article that originally stated her position on what she referred to as the justice cascade. And unfortunately, Ellen is very sick. And uh, so Catherine couldn't be here today because uh, she's in Maine. Um, but hopefully you'll get the next best, next best thing, which is uh, some student that you've never heard of. So uh, I'll, do, I'll do my best to uh, represent her arguments today. Uh, basically, I and another graduate student, Dara McCracken at the University of Minnesota, have been working very closely with Catherine on the final stages of preparation of her uh, forthcoming book, which is, referred, or which is called the, the Justice Cascade. Uh, and it, it does have the same title as work that she's already done, but in many ways it's an, it's an enrichment and it's a condensation and, uh, and in a way kind of a collection of, of work that she's uh, done in the past. And so it's kind of a culminating point of research that she's been interested in uh, for a decade or a little bit more. And she spent the last few years really counting, uh, counting trials, counting events in the world and trying to... Uh, to fight through a lot of the complex issues that we're facing, you know, on the on the panels today and the panels yesterday, and and the University of London conference we had on Thursday, uh, and and really trying to simplify and I think size up what is a historical conjuncture. Uh, that's the highfalutin terms for what she's doing, but in very simple and personal terms, what she's doing is trying to create a book that's a reminder of of what the system at the international level and the global level used to look like, what it looks like now, and what challenges we're still facing. Uh, and, and so in, in that respect, uh, I think it's a very useful work. Um, so I'll be trying to accomplish uh, two basic things with my presentation today. One is to present the core of her book. Um, most of you, I imagine, are familiar with her work on norm, norm cascades and spirals and the boomerang effect and the justice cascade. Uh, but I think a lot of these arguments are sometimes repackaged by scholars in ways that undersell the original uh, theoretical complexity. And this new book, I think, tries to tackle that theoretical complexity, which may or may not show up in the few graphics that I've prepared on my uh, minimal PowerPoint presentation. We're PowerPoint minimalists at Minnesota, uh, so especially compared to Pierre. <laughs> um, but like I said, this uh, this book is one that embraces complexity and at the same same time tries to fight through it. Uh, the second goal of the presentation is to serve as the other side of the story in a conference about amnesties. This is a conference about uh, what amnesties mean, whether they mean impunity, whether they block punishment. And this, in in her work in some ways is the other side of the story, the parallel development that has at least put individual criminal accountability on the table and has created a new field of political contestation. Whether that is hijacked uh, transitional justice discourse at the domestic level uh, in many cases, is that's, that's probably the case. It's probably the case that sometimes there are unintended consequences, uh, that sometimes 
uh, impunity is alive. But at the same time, we're now able to argue about a lot of these issues, and, we're, and, and this is something that has found its way into politics, and that's something that Catherine is trying to remind us of. And, and so, uh, in many respects, this presentation is about presenting the other side of the story uh, in this current historical moment. Uh, the interaction between amnesties uh, and, and prosecutions, I think, still needs to be explored more. Uh, and that's something that Max's uh, presentation really brings up, is this kind of ambiguity in the moment that we're at. But what Catherine refers to it as is, is now we're in a, a hybrid moment, or we're, we're in a situation where there's a hybrid model between three different models uh, of, of accountability that exist at the international level. Those are uh, the, the, in, the immunity model that was prevalent as of 60 years ago, uh, the state accountability model, which was written in to international treaties, regional treaties, uh, and, and domestic law to a certain extent. And now what is pockets of individual criminal accountability that's finding its way uh, into a new hybrid system. Um, so uh, to, to take a step back and to present the historical argument uh, or the methods of the, of the work, the, uh, the piece of Catherine's book that appears on the website is cobbled together from different chapters of her book but it draws substantially on chapter four, uh, which has changed significantly in the last month. We've retitled it, and, um, and I should say that though it's her work, I sometimes use the first person plural to, to refer to it because I have worked on it for a while. So I might call it our work at times, especially if you're complimenting it. So if you're complimenting it, it's our work. If you have pretty harsh criticisms, it's, it's her work. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, and I will say also that we, we look forward to your criticisms, and if you give us some, then we might answer them in the book, because it's still in the editing stage, and then we'll just look smarter, which uh, we look forward to. Um, but the, the, the chapter that she has put on the website and that I'm presenting is a historical argument using narrative methods. Uh, and as she puts it, it's a description of accountability efforts without causal arguments about why they were adopted. Uh, we've taken a step back away from causality for now, uh, which is the kind of sine qua non of, of good academic research. Uh, we are more interested in telling a story uh, right now. And, uh, and, and so um, the historical argument basically goes like this. 60 years ago, uh, there was sovereign immunity. Uh, this was the predominant model of accountability or a lack thereof. Uh, there was little accountability for leaders, for elites. Of course, it's anachronistic to say that there was no human rights accountability because 60 years ago, before 1948, human rights as we know them today didn't technically exist uh, because they weren't documented uh, with the Universal Declaration. Um, but one could say that leaders making life and death decisions about populations and that were wielding means of violence uh, in everyday political affairs were basically out of reach and they couldn't be touched by the people that they were affecting. Um, there's great work by the historian, he's actually at Minnesota, so maybe this is a plug, but by Eric Weitz on this issue of the move from the Vienna system uh, in the 19th century to the what he refers to as the Paris system. In the way that in the Paris system following World War I, leaders really were pretty flippant and at times nonchalant about the way that they moved populations around. There was a, no, there was a notion that self-determination was the most important thing and, and it was about trying to put nations within state borders. The nation state was what everybody was trying to get to and that led to 
horrible abuses. And these abuses, in some ways, the argument that Catherine's trying to make is that this led to the erosion or the it, it presented what was the obvious difficulties and problems of the immunity system. So that began to erode um, uh, after World War II. And uh, a Eurocentric state system uh, started to now have to deal with uh, what were the problems, the, the very basic problems of, of what they had uh, developed so far. So with the Universal Declaration in 1948, there was the emergence of the state accountability model, wherein states, in the abstract, became the juridical entities held to account for human rights crimes. Uh, this new orthodoxy, as she refers to it, uh, of state accountability found its way into the European Court of Human Rights, later the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and most recently the African Court of Human Rights. Uh, in addition to all the hard law UN human rights treaties that went into effect starting uh, in the 70s. Uh, remedy under the state accountability model was sought in the form of changed policies on the part of, of states, but there was little by way of actual redress or justice broadly conceived for human rights crimes. Um, in the, uh, as, as Catherine states, in the 1980s, after decades of drafting and ratifying these treaties, the international community found that human rights violations were getting worse, not better. Uh, finding states culpable and leveraging did little to nothing, and in some cases, it actually made the situation worse. Uh, and there are, actual, there are great works on how uh, the U.S. tried to apply sanctions or tried to leverage foreign aid against countries, and this usually just ended up making things worse for the people on the ground. Um, so this, this, she argues, would ultimately create the demand to introduce individual criminal accountability into the field of international human rights law. And uh, the individual criminal accountability model, uh, Catherine writes, does not apply to the whole range of civil and political rights, but rather to a small subset of rights referred to as physical integrity rights. So the idea here is that in individual criminal accountability exists within a system that still has elements of the other two models, the immunity model and the state accountability model. But now, as it, as it pertains to physical integrity rights, there is some effort to make it to make it possible for individuals to have standing in courts and to seek redress for their individual cases. Um, so then, so outlining these different models, Catherine really turns on uh, a historical development of the international, or of, sorry, of individual criminal accountability, uh, and that's the historical story told in chapter four. Uh, the story of the rise of the individual criminal accountability model is one that she tells with kind of narrative complexity using the analogical framework of a stream. Uh, and I'll, I'll uh, jump to this chart or table. So this is, this is the best that I could do. <laughs> uh, this is putting it all in one place. Um, so if I'll, I'll start with the bottom, which is what we refer to as the hard law stream bed in keeping with the analogy. Um, the stream bed is hard law that provides sources for individual criminal accountability, and it starts with the Geneva Conventions and the Genocide Convention in the late 1940s, which were not, I, I would say, activated until the 1980s, uh, with the work of Human Rights Watch and R.A. Nair in places like El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, 
In, but she traces the work of, of Sharif Bassiouni and Arie Nair specifically. In 1968, Bassiouni was working for the International Association of Penal Law in France, and he noted that, uh, he told Catherine in an interview, everything was established on the basis of a relationship between governments. And I, and, and I Sharif Bassiouni, had the image of individual the individual being a package that one government wraps up and puts in the mail and sends to another government. And, and I said, again, this is in his words, this is ridiculous. Conceptually, this is not right. There's not a bilateral relationship between two governments. This is a trilateral relationship where the individual is a subject as much as the states are. Now, as strange as that may sound to you, this is the most revolutionary idea to descend on the field of international criminal justice in 1968, he claims. Uh, skipping some history, ultimately, Bassiouni, would help, with the help of the Swedish and, and Dutch delegations uh, to the UN, would succeed in getting a semi-individualized convention against torture passed in the 80s, uh, which refers to various state obligations, but also refers to the offender as the person or state official who either inflicts torture directly or instigates consents or acquiesces to it. Uh, and this was an inclusion of the individual criminal accountability notion within international law. Oh, I need to slow down. Oh. I'm sorry. Just go back a little bit to that idea. Okay. Yeah, I'll just I'll just return. So. Um, yeah, I have it written, so I'll just yeah. Okay, so. Uh, basically, the idea is that with the Convention Against Torture, uh, there was an inclusion of the individual uh, and, and the notion that a person or a singular state official could be tried or, or not tried necessarily but could be responsible as an individual and that was one of the first uh, times that this appears and that's why we have it uh, written in 1987 the Convention Against Torture as being uh, affirming up of this notion of, of individual criminal accountability in hard law at the international level. Uh, in this chapter also, she talks about how R.E.A. Nair, for his part, uh, uh, began to apply humanitarian law, uh, which had before that been separate from human rights law, or had been considered analytically separate. Uh, but they realized that there was a utility in returning to common Article 3, and seeing that there was a way that they, they could apply the... Uh, the individual standing uh, to the cases of civil war that existed at the time, which were El Salvador and um, and uh, Guatemala, and yeah, which were then embroiled in civil wars. Uh, again, this is just the hard law hard law side of the story. The other streams, if we look at them, uh, stream one is international prosecution. So Nuremberg was, uh, as Catherine likes to say, the exception that proves the rule of sovereign immunity because it was an effort at individual criminal accountability uh, in a system that really wasn't favorable to that notion and it was seen as victor's justice at the time uh, by, by a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, but there were efforts at actually conducting fair trials, arguably, and at due process at the time. Uh, so this, this precedent actually lied dormant until the ICTY and ICTR uh, kind of revivified uh, what were, at, uh, at the time, old precedents that hadn't been used during the Cold War. Uh, and that's the way that, that was the narrative that actually built up around the establishment of the ICTY. Uh, that's another stream. The, the second stream is the domestic prosecutions 
that began in Greece and Portugal. Little known cases, uh, but Catherine went back for the book and researched Greece and Portugal to find that there were actually relationships between Greece uh, and the amnesty campaign there and what would later be pretty revolutionary movements in Argentina. In uh, Argentina, Catherine largely considers to be a global protagonist in this whole effort uh, to, to move towards individual criminal accountability. These uh, domestic prosecutions were actually pretty uh, numerous. Uh, um, if we look at this, um, so beginning at the end of the Cold War, uh, there was basically, uh, because a structural opening existed in global politics, there was this uh, ballooning of domestic prosecutions. And she thinks that taken together with the foreign and the international, this formed uh, basically the justice cascade, which viewed cumul cumulatively looks like this. Uh, and this is what she refers to as the justice cascade, all these practices of individual criminal accountability that were going on. And these, she argues, all converged at, the Ro at Rome, at the Rome Conference. Uh, and historically, we've done a lot of uh, digging through conference documents, uh, looking for linkages, and there were a lot of linkages between Latin America uh, and, and the Rome Conference. Uh, and there was a lot of drawing on this domestic experience of individual criminal accountability, and there was this notion at the time that nothing was going to get done there, and something did get done, and that was something uh, that, that in many ways Catherine tries to remind us is a progress. Though there are all these problems still that we face, uh, and there are all these challenges with accountability. Uh, at every turn, there have been people that said that there was nothing that was going to happen. And, um, and, and, and so that's something that she tries to remind us with her work. Um, finally, I'd just like to ask some questions in conclusion uh, that we'd like to think about. Um, because this is a conference about amnesties, we're, we're wondering how are amnesties situated in this, in, ca in this particular understanding of world events, this sizing up of the conjuncture, where we're kind of in a hybrid model between uh, these different forms of accountability. It used to be simple that amnesties were antagonistic to individual criminal accountability. Now, with Louise's work and the work of Mark Freeman and, uh, and the ambiguities that Max points out, it's not always the case that amnesties are necessarily contradictory to trial justice or prosecutions, uh, and, and they're being written in a way that's, uh, that's actually more nuanced uh, and, uh, and allows for both to exist. So we're wondering also if the rise of individual criminal accountability has led to the rise of amnesties. That's a question that we have. Or if individual criminal accountability is actually a response to what were already increasing numbers of amnesties. Are these parallel processes that don't dialogue with one another, or is there some kind of causal arrow that we could draw in between those things? Um, finally, I, I just want to say that I don't think that this book is an end of history type of argument. That's something that comes up a lot, that's triumphalist. We've succeeded with the ICC, it's over. Uh, obviously it's not. Much remains to be done and there's, there are many imperfections. However, there are now more options and a great deal more activity going on, as Pear points out, just simply with the regional court, uh, the Inter-American court. Um, Catherine does something that's pretty complicated in the book. She looks at the way that this affects the U.S. around uh, Guantanamo and around uh, its response to extradition claims or, or claims that are being made around its extradition policies. Um, 
and it shows that this is something that's not that's not necessarily situated in a hegemonic moment, uh, and that it's there's still resistance uh, in activities around international criminal accountability. Uh, with that, I'll, I I just like to conclude by saying that uh, while today the discussions uh, today and yesterday the discussions of, are over the imperfections of justice, at least there is a discussion about justice rather than silence that's just lost within discussions of high politics and security affairs. Uh, and that's it, yeah.